Saved by Marner! Holy mackerel! It is Gilmore waiting, waiting around the net, waiting in the Gilmore! Johnny Toronto! I wonder if they can hear it on Long Island. Great move! What a goal! Beauty! Austin Matthews! Bless you boys! What a game! Welcome to the MLHS podcast. Three weeks in a row, three straight podcasts. I am fired up. The Leafs have made a number of trades since Alec was here. We talked about it at the end of the last one, and a lot has happened since the last time we spoke on this thing. Absolutely fired up. This is easily, I think, by far uh, the best Leaf team I've cheered for in the cap era. That's no question, I don't think. I always get this nostalgic feeling from when the Leafs were... I know you guys have talked about it in the pod I wasn't on, but when the Leafs were legit contenders and there was no cap and the draft and entry-level contracts was the last thing anybody cared about. I know I'm like mad, I'm probably mashing a bunch of different deadlines together, but like those string of deadlines when they added like Nolan and Leach and Housley and Francis, and even... Uh, we I don't think this got mentioned in the past one, but even Dougie Gilmore unfortunately got hurt on his first shift, I think. It was, it was, I was fired up though. It's kind of funny because I think the Leafs were out west in Alberta. Yeah, he got hurt against Calgary. Wasn't it Dave Lowry? Exactly. I remember I was at an away tournament in, uh, in a hotel somewhere. I remember rushing to the television because I missed the first few shifts when we got back to the hotel. And I think he stepped over the bench in five minutes into the game and he collided with Dave Lowry, I think, and uh, fucked his knee. I actually talked to Dave Lowry about that a few years ago when we were talking about, um, a few of his prospects in Victoria when he was coaching there. Off the record, you spoke to him about it? Yeah, I was like, do you remember that? Like, with all this stuff? Like, he's like, who the fuck is this Leafs fan who thinks that I care about? Like, he's like, I don't think he really totally remembered it, but it was like, it was just like a freak thing where he was like backing up in the neutral zone. Yeah, it was totally accidental. But that said, when you asked him about it off record, did you say, fuck you? Or, <laughs> <laughs> well, I know. I was like, all I said was like, it was a devastating last act as a Leaf. And I think it was his last act in the league, right? That was his last shift. Yeah, that was that was it for him. Uh, as an NHLer. This will not be that, though. This will not be that. We're not going to Foligno or Gilmore it, hopefully, this time around. And it's just, it does fire up. It's like, it's the armchair GM kind of stuff where it's, the Leafs took two big swings on two big trades. Obviously, the Roar one's bigger than this one, but... You know, we sat here a few weeks ago and I said the sentence on the pod that Colorado secured, you know, retention on three different players. They did a depth upgrade with uh, Cogliano. They upgraded their top six with Lekkinen. They added a top four D in Manson. And that's the type of deadline Dubas was going to need to have with the playoff path in front of him and the holes in the team. And he did all of it. Like we wanted two or three forwards. Of those, we wanted like two clear bottom six upgrades in the form of legitimate NHL or bottom sixers who can grind and who can score better than what they had there before. And they needed one top six upgrade who can also play center ideally. And I think he's basically checked all those boxes. Yeah. And, and I think it's interesting and just kind of you monitor some of the conversations and uh, the chatter that's, that's out there in the, the fan world and the, and the public world. And, you know, I'll, I'll be honest when, when, Kyle was first hired he did a number of things that I thought was just insanely head-scratching I think there was legitimate gripes to be had about how he handled some of the contract negotiations I think some of the ways that he tried to utilize the roster where it was 
let's have these random small skilled guys on the third and fourth line as if it's going to be some sort of loophole and hockey has changed for the first time in decades to a crazy degree which it definitely did not um you know those were things that were by and large i thought naive and wasteful of, of the core but you know, and I think sometimes people criticize some of the moves, but it's okay to just say that he has evolved, and it's okay to like the. It's okay to like him now if you didn't before. I mean, I'm not saying I didn't like him before, but I was definitely concerned about some of the things he was doing, and I think he's very much evolved. You know, like I'm not listening to interviews anymore where he's randomly going on protecting Cody Cece in the media, and. It's not, you know, let's have 18-year-old Nick Robertson straight out of Peterborough right to the second power play unit in the playoffs for the first time in his life to play NHL hockey. I think evolution is of his philosophy on a lot of those points is really obvious. It was clear today, and I think I've, how many times have I put this into our group chat, Anthony, about like, they just need playoff scorers. They need to go to the net. They need to go to the house. Like, I was listening to that presser today, and I think he said mostly everything that I wanted him to say, and... You know, the moves speak them from the, speak for themselves, and I'm a, mostly a big fan of both of them. You know, what he said about, like, not backing down from the challenge of the division, pushing in the chips, helping the team score the kind of goals they haven't been able to score in elimination games before. There's definitely a, an evolution that's taken place. It's okay to just sit there and say, yeah, we didn't score f- repeatedly in crunch time playoff games. We just weren't getting to the net enough. I mean, Ryan O'Reilly sticks out like a sore thumb the way he drives the net. Achari's obviously nowhere on the same planet as O'Reilly in terms of being a hockey player uh, and what he brings. But at the lower end of the lineup, he does the poor man's version of that. He goes to the net. He's hard on the forecheck. Um, I think Lafferty probably got a little bit overrated. And now that the Leafs have acquired him, he's definitely getting overrated. But he does. He is aggressive on the forecheck, if nothing else. And this season, he's shown he has some ability to chip in offense. What that looks like when he's pushed back down the lineup, is it what he looked like in Pittsburgh because it wasn't that much? Or has his game grown? I guess we'll find out. But even, to be honest, even if he isn't much, who cares? He could be their 13th forward capably. I mean, it's not a big deal for this playoff run. And he's under contract for next season anyway, which is still a bargain of a price. I don't want to get into the next season stuff yet because we're still very much in in this playoff. It is it is notable though. Like it is a huge differentiation yeah. between the Roar and Achari trades and the McCabe and Lafferty ones in that you're getting multiple years of service out of them at really good numbers with the retention on McCabe putting them at like two million or whatever it is, and then the price on Lafferty being pretty good too. And I think that you made that point in your article and it's it's very valid, which is like Hall is probably gone. Brody and Geo are definitely gone the year after that. Um, having him locked in at two million helps with you know continuity and certainty, and just having like a solid NHL D man signed to a good number with term is is important. And I think that's also true up front because it's like Kerfoot's expiring, Aston Reese is expiring, Engvall's expiring, Camp Achari now. If Ang- if Camp has a good playoff and and wants to get paid, which kudos to him if he does, you have Lafferty, you have Holmberg, and you can kind of just figure it out. I, f- I find it entire. I find it fascinating how Pontus Holmberg's name has completely fallen off the map, as it should. But, you know, it was only a month ago where he was getting definitely a lot of this commentary. I kept saying, if if Pontus Holmberg doesn't go to the wing, I don't really see how he's playing in this playoff lineup. Because there's just no chance that they're putting this rookie as a center 
in the playoffs. It's just not happening. And the amount of pushback I got was shocking. He's nowhere to be found now. Yeah, we were talking about like evolution and philosoph- philosophical shifts and Dubas. I think that's also one. What's actually required in the playoffs to support this core and score the kind of goals that need to be scored is one piece of it, but also just from throwing sort of Nick Robertson into your top six in the middle of a playoff series out of the OHL to basically acknowledging that that playoff is with with a few exceptions, obviously. Um, Generally speaking, it's not for young. No, it's not. It's for for veteran players. It's a, and I think there's also a point to be made here about just like the. It's almost it's an intangible like the staleness of the team. I think for me, it's largely been ex- extinguished now. Uh, we're talking about like all these internal players getting a shot to to play, and I think that was a worthwhile thing to do between the start of the season and the deadline. But like he didn't air out the stench of the team at all with the summer that he had, right? Like he added Cal Yarncroft and basically nothing else. I mean, who did they lose of note? Yeah, exactly. The premise is sort of like we'll see who internally emerges. If not, we'll get to work at the deadline in a serious way. Um, and like adding a star veteran and a proven winner like O'Reilly, potential fan favorite grinders like like Achari and Lafferty, and I think an all around solid NHL defenseman in in McCabe it just I think it just gives the team a fresh look and Dubas in the in the presser today even went as far as to say it's I think he admitted that it it, he's basically changed the identity of the team which I thought was a notable takeaway like the makeup feels tangibly different in behind the big four like it's it's not just that it's deeper overall but it also just feels a little bit more like playoff battle ready to me I think he has enough options which is then this is going to be important he has enough options where if some of these if the quote-unquote big four are struggling or not playing that well, where he can legitimately just say, take a seat, and every fan should like shrug their shoulders because it's not you know, some terrible player that's now going to have to play more. You, you, you could just say, take a seat. I'm going to run <laughs> Ryan O'Reilly. Yeah, it feels less like the team has its stars kind of feeling the full pressure and the full burden to get it done in the playoffs all on their own because – there's less of the like in behind the big four. You don't have these kind of like identity list muddled lines that can't score. It's much more of a proper team now, I think, with very few holes in it. We can get into question marks. I mean, health is always a question mark for any team, but then goaltending even like keeps bench management in best playoffs. But it, it just feels like it's a harder uh, roster to screw up with from Keith's perspective, just in terms of the versatility and the options that he has. I think I think Dubas has generally done a, a great job this in season. I think the only things that are going to potentially be problematic come playoff time. It'll be three things, but I mean, at least two of them were active decisions you make. It'll be whether, like you mentioned, Keith's bench management and the overall coaching staff as a whole, because their special teams have been terrible for years on end now in the playoffs. And this is the, that's the kind of thing to me where. It's one thing if you just keep throwing out the big four with the previous teams and say, well, that's basically what we have from a talent and skill level standpoint. But you don't have to do that now, right? Bunting has proven himself legit. You could put him out there. You could put Ryan O'Reilly out there. They have options on defense. Like There is some additional skill. I mean, Giordano is still... I, to me, Giordano last year in the playoffs went to... The point in game five and was good and they scored and then they never did it again and so i just kind of look at it and go it's really going to be on him so that's one two will be the goaltending which none of us know i mean it's just, it is what it is it's 
Sam Snoff's been by and large fine this year. I've I've liked him. I like I liked the signing at the time. I put his name out there the second that he was he seemed right away, the second he wasn't qualified, I said, Well, they're gonna have to hedge the goaltending. This is a very logical candidate to do that with. But they bet on Matt Murray and it wasn't about getting a third round pick back or the price. I mean, he bet on him. So we'll see between the two if that works out. And then the only other the third thing is just the absence of a stud defenseman and you can argue whether he's had the opportunity to do it or not but really I I look at the forward group and say but that's about as good as you're going to get in the cap era you have five high-end forwards and and Michael Bunting and then you have depth and versatility throughout your entire bottom six you know there's like six or seven guys they could probably play at center and just kind of move things around. That's really important. It can't get emphasized, emphasized enough. I think it's to your point about in the article today about like floor versus ceiling, like it, it being a good raising of the floor kind of move. The thing to keep in mind when you're staring down a long and grueling playoff run, like all these series are probably going to be six, seven games, and just you're going to and leave them, you know, bloodied and battered every every single step of the way. That's it's gonna it's gonna test your depth like never before. So I think Sandine is a player that probably fully deserves to be in your top six, but I also think a team that's going to survive that kind of gauntlet of opponents and those kind of long, grueling series is going to have the kind of depth both at center and on D where you have like one defenseman that isn't playing, should be playing, and you have a couple of natural centermen stashed on the wing. Um, moving to the, from, to the wing from a center is not a big deal. Um, Keith said it the other day finally because he got like his 100th question from the media yeah. about it. He was just like, it's not a big, it's the easiest transition. Winger is the good, easiest position player. to play in the sport. If you are a winger, like, good, good job. It's like, it's really about whether you embrace it or whether or not you, you have an ego about it and whether or not you sort of, you really value the amount of puck, puck touches you get to the middle of the ice to get into your game. But I don't like, there was a time like we've heard different stories about this before like Stamkos in Tampa Bay was apparently yeah him and him and Cooper were at odds about it but as long as the player is embracing it fully like we saw those those teams uh under uh, Babcock those team Canada teams in like Sochi and then the World Cup playing basically perfect hockey with elite centers on their wings and Tavares was in I think it was the World Cup right when he was playing with um Getzlaff and Stamkos yeah on yeah, a line he was and on. That, that, so that's all three centermen on a line point the point being like the spine of the team, when you have Landings, you're seven, and now you have uh, Tavares, Matthews, Ryan O'Reilly, Achari, Camp, Lafferty, um, and I guess if you wanted to throw Kerfoot in there, but hopefully we n- it never comes to that now, as center depth, like the spine of the team feels a lot stronger to me. There's also no such thing as a winger in the offensive zone. It's just three forwards. I, you're a center in the D zone, and the responsibility is a lot different and your ability to move up and down the ice and, and where you start and how things work out that way, absolutely different. But in the offensive zone, it's just three forwards moving around. And the back check is who's first back. You know, it's it's more about once you're kind of locked in there and trying to control the middle of the ice and maybe you're a little bit more defensively conscious. You know, if like if you're David Camp or whoever, you're you may you pick and choose your Always spots. Above. Yeah, in terms of when you're actually going to go into the offensive zone as opposed to kind of hovering over the play and, and watching it. But by and large, the options are there. I, I find some of the criticism or, you know, 
shots people are taking and it's just a little bit trying too hard to find things that are wrong I mean ultimately it's on the players but he's done a pretty good job where you can look at the lineup and say it's strong you know like I said the goaltending it might be problematic and then at some point you could sit there and say should you have gone out there and acquired a top end demon that could very much be a concern the problem is that they're hard to find the the option is realistically it's it's Chikrin and it's and I have no question on the on his ability as a player, but I do have a, t- a million questions about his ability to stay healthy, as everyone does. So you kind of go back and forth on it. But, uh, you know, good for Dubas for a- a- adapting as he's kind of gone along here. You know, the worst thing that could happen is, I you know, he obviously did make mistakes along the way, especially early on. But the worst thing that could happen is he just would have been stubborn and and tried to keep doing the same things and he didn't i mean that's a smart of a that's the sort of the mark of a smart person yeah right? the, the ability to evolve as evidence changes right um, yeah and i think he's done a fantastic job i'm super thrilled with the deadline and i think he's been really good at his job basically since um i don't know i, I know people see felino we won't go back to that debate because i know you guys had it the other week but like everyone sees that as sort of some sort of aberration or black mark I don't see it that way, and I think he's been increasingly good at his job over the years. Um, and I, I, I like the ad of like I, I know some people thought maybe defense was superfluous or extraneous as like a need, uh, but I think I sort of I was hemming and hawing on it uh, whether or not like McKay would be enough of a needle mover. Uh, it's still really important to, to think about it as more than just this playoff run in terms of that acquisition. Um, but even in terms of this playoff run. I'm I'm not a massive McCabe guy. I think he's getting a little bit overrated by some of the the models out there that you know people are screenshotting and sending out over Twitter and calling it analysis. But yeah, you can't compare I, Jake McCabe to Jake Muzzin. No, it's, he's not. But like he he is solid in all areas. Probably not spectacular in any. He's competitive. He's a bit of size. He has a bit of an edge. Probably more than you're going to get in Sandine. He's probably a little bit more equipped to deal with. You know the four checks you're going to face in the playoffs than Sandine is at this time. He has some jam. I think fans are really going to like him. Yeah, we went down his fight card before the show started here, and he's got six or seven with like some. I mean, he's not a good fighter, but he's he's a yeah. willing combatant. He fought the, the fights Wilson. themselves didn't go well, but I mean, if you're squaring up Tom Wilson and Radkovitz, and, and yeah. you're kind of going, I mean, I mean, all the respect in the world for the guy. There's been a number of times over the years, and you can argue how important is this really i would say really in terms of team camaraderie and all of those pieces that go with building an actual team because that's what hockey is it's a team Uh, i think guys that stand up for their teammates or hop in there and most of those fights were not him picking a fight with tom wilson because you know he wanted to get fed it was because those guys were acting up and and he stood up for a teammate so it's completely admirable and he has enough skill i mean he's top 40 and 5v5 points as a d-man on an absolute disgrace of a hockey team this season like that's not nothing like he can definitely move the puck he can definitely move around well out there he's recovered from that spinal surgery i you know i don't know if you ever put that to bed but i think he's done enough to show that i can stay healthy and play in the league and it's not gonna hinder me uh or anything along those lines so that's all positive i mean he could he could feasibly just be a good third pairing demon and at two million dollars that's not a problem 
and it still keeps it keeps a veteran you know i've always i like the way justin Bourne says it which says like an adult with mark giordano just keeps an adult on the third pairing worst case scenario he's like go play with timothy lilligren and, and be an adult on that pairing and do a little bit of everything and you could still you know mark giordano and justin hole have not been bad my question's more so about giordano's ability to hold up every other night through the playoff run yeah, I like the options now. You can go Geo with Lily, or you can go Hall with. You know that Hall and, and Giordano works. Uh, you know that Giordano and Lilligan works. Now you can go either McCabe with Lily or McCabe with Hall. Um, I, I think you have real options now, and I I think there's a point that's maybe been in the defense discussion, the level of need, like in regards to this season anyway. The games against Boston, Seattle, and Minnesota all stand out to me because I I remember watching all three of them thinking. This team is pretty good to to good defensively, the Leafs are, but I think it's mostly driven by the fact that they have a, a really good group of forwards that are playing like a committed defensive game uh, with a lot of good two-way forwards, and it's less to do with uh, their group of six on the back end, which is which is all around fine, but it's like I think it gets exposed by those kind of relentless forechecks of the Minnesotas and Seattles and Bostons of the world. Which is important too, because people point out that their goals against number, right? Yeah. Like, well, they're you know top five, hovering around top five team goals against. Their defense is good. I'm like, that that's not why they're they're. It's not their defense that's doing that. They get bullied off of pucks a little bit too easily on the forecheck. They struggle to kill cycles enough. Um, and I think Sandine was like a kid. The facing down that prospect of, like Justin Hole's been recently healthy scratched. I personally think he takes too much heat in the market, but he's not driving a pairing. Giordano's 39, and let's be honest, there were some rough moments in those Seattle and Wild games from him. As much as I think overall he's always going to stay in the battle, and you're going to – I certainly am a big Giordano fan, but there were moments in there where you're going – like every other night against Tampa, Boston, then New York or New Jersey, it's a hell of a lot to ask. Uh, It it feels a lot better just knowing that you can kind of – like it's a it's a defense meant to have second like three second pairings and i'm not sure you had a second pairing if you're running sandine and Lilligren against at least in the framework of playing against elite opponents yeah like the bostons of the world yeah i think it it's the balance right i mean there's a feasible world where honestly if jake muzzin didn't get hurt this season i wanted to see that muzzin Lilligren pairing get some serious run and see if they could be the main pairing in a shutdown role and and if McCabe and Lilligren do end up playing together I don't think that they're going to end up being the main shutdown pairing but if they just make life a little bit easier on Giordano so then he's not playing 22 23 minutes a night come playoff time not right now come playoff time and he's more around 20 I think that's the kind of scenario you want where it just makes it a little bit more palatable for him and it improves your team overall and you know uh sometimes people sit there and they say well what team can handle good forechecks? That's what good forechecks do. They turn pucks over and they create offense. And absolutely, there's no defense in the league that escapes that. I think the big difference, especially when you refer to some of the games that you were talking about, particularly that Boston one, is, I mean, Giordano, McCabe, any veteran is still going to turn the puck over. It's it's an insanely hard position to play. The difference, I find, is the turnovers are less gimmies. They're not leading to gimme goals they might turn the puck over in the corner and it's still a turnover and the other team might get the puck and they might create something but they don't put their partners in terrible spots as yeah 
and we have seen you know and, and we're kind of picking on him right now and again I think he's going to be fine long term but we're trying to win a cup this season you know Sandine we've seen just give away pucks that lead to like tap-ins empty net goals guys walking in all alone that is the kind of stuff change yeah. the series when it's when the margins are that tight you can't give free goals away that you know it's so hard it's it's one thing it's one thing to lose a battle and it, it turns into a goal and i'm thinking of that uh matthews marner two-on-one in game five and it's a battle one in the neutral zone and it turns into a two-on-one and they make a sick play and they score but it's a different thing when it's sandine flipping a puck up the middle of the ice against the habs and it's it's a basically it's an easy goal for for a guy like you know that's that's a simple goal i think those are the kind of things that you're you're trying to drive out and tampa's still very good i honestly think they're getting disrespected in in a in this whole you know the leafs have made a bunch of trades which is awesome boston obviously made a big move the rangers are loading up the devils just made a massive trade and um we'll, we'll talk about the trade itself that tampa made but even just beyond that, I mean, they've gone to three straight cups. If I was Tampa, I would feel, and I'm not necessarily even saying it's true, but if I was them, I would feel like if Braden Point didn't get hurt, that we would have won three cups in a row. Yeah. And and people are treating them like they're bums or that, you know, it's fully over. And it might be over. They might finally get in the playoffs and, and you say, you know, father time is undefeated. But Vasilevsky is not even in his 30s yet. He is very much the one goalie I would want in any playoff series. You know, Braden Point is about to turn 27, I believe. You know, Anthony Sorelli is still very much young and has his legs. Like, these guys aren't dead. They're not. This isn't the end of the Red Wings era where you're watching Steve Eiserman on one leg and they get upset by the Oilers. You know, they're a really good hockey team. They're still very much right there as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, I just think that they're going to be limited by the fact that they can't really add on defense. Their, their uh, defense is a problem, though. That yeah. I think that is a real thing. McDonough, like, you look at it right now and you go, okay, the Leafs have essentially the same roster, minus Muzzin, plus McCabe, plus, like, honestly, a, a more mature, better version of Lilgren. Um, and then up front they added Roar, uh, Chari, and Lafferty. And then Tampa's basically added Janot and... Uh, subtracted McDonough and Pilat. Um and you're looking at the balance of that and it's a seven game series decided by one goal in game seven and you're saying I kind of like I kind of like how the Leafs stack up but you know it's like goaltending yeah. could be absolutely everything um, goaltending is the great equalizer if it puts you in a bad spot with a weak goal against in two of the seven games and now you're t- chasing a game versus a team that's like a vet that's what's I'm always so impressed about Tampa is that they can just win any which way you want. They know how to, if they need to lock a game down, they'll lock a game down. Like you lose Braden Point on the road in game seven against the Leafs who can score um, theoretically in the playoffs. And they had a crowd that was into it. it that That is yeah. an intimidating place to play. I, I know players get their kicks out of sticking it to Toronto, but it is loud in there. I was I kept saying in our group chat during Game Seven in the third period just how much respect I had for what they were doing, like the way they were locking it down in Game Seven yeah. with other top centermen was insane. Like I, I thought Vasilevsky was good, but I didn't think he like stole that game. Braden Point staying on the bench and basically crying because he couldn't play, and and the and the boys digging in for him was if that happened against anyone else 
other than the Leafs. I mean, I guess the other reason for optimism that I would have is that I do think um, it's I do think the Leafs were previously an easier team for Tampa to look at and say we have two lines to worry about. We know the Leafs will have the puck a lot on the outside of the of the zone. That's fine. We'll maybe lose the possession battle a little bit, but we'll win the battles on the inside of the ice at both nets with our D and the and our depth forwards and also the edge that their stars play with. I think that goes under noticed sometimes. And yeah. we'll probably get better goaltending, and we still like our odds. I think the Leafs having a different makeup where they can hopefully turn more of that possession time advantage they'll have into actual offense in critical games, which is a thing that drives me insane with them. Um, because people just look at those numbers and then go, well, they got unlucky or they got goalied. But I don't leave those. A lot of those elimination games, I have not left saying they got goalied. No, I haven't been in the middle of the game going, holy shit, this goalie is blacking out. And, the, you know, like that time Dwayne Rolson had 58 saves or whatever against the Leafs. And you're like, okay, he's playing outside. I never felt like that. I mean, I argue with people still to this day. I don't think Carey Price played lights out by any means. I think he had a very calming effect on the team and he helped their confidence. I don't think he stole them that series. They, I mean, they get they by virtue of being elite goaltenders, they give you nothing easy. But yeah, I, the Leafs just like that's that's why I'm so encouraged. Like watching Ryan O'Reilly against Buffalo or against um, Seattle the other night, in terms of it's way more of a will than a skill thing. But he's just at the net, causing chaos, tying up defensemen, taking away the goalie's eyes, and it led to like three or four goals in those two games alone. He's also a total gamer. I mean. Speaking of, I mean, they've definitely gone into games. Even that game seven was against Tampa was the one where they, they've done it the least. But basically every elimination game before that one, they've gone in insanely tentative. And I just, I don't think O'Reilly's, oh, I know O'Reilly will not be tentative. I think he's going to go in and even though he's not the best player on the team, I think he could set the tone for just getting after it and and pushing guys and you know we've talked about this before Keith is unmentioned a number of times the bench being lifeless or quiet or you know needing to play Wayne Simmons to put some juice in we've even seen Wayne Simmons start playoff games shift one to try to get the energy up and the blood boiling and I just I think they have actual real palatable options now where you can say Achari could start a game and just absolutely rattle the boards and run someone to eternity. You know, O'Reilly is cards on the cards on the table. He's he's a guy you want in a big game in a big spot, and hopefully that just has a triple, trickle down effect on guys where they're you know standing on their tippy toes and they're a little bit taller. Yeah, totally. Before we move on to sort of the next part of the conversation about you know what's the next move and such, uh, we were talking about like Tampa and the arms race and all that narrative. And um, on the other side, on the flip side of that, I think it's also silly, all the narratives that have come out of this about it being some sort of like knee jerk move that, that oh Dubas just made. That's the most, oh my God. one of the more frustrating takes I've seen out there since the move that it's true that they've chatted about this trade for months. <laughs> so that's your first evidence that that's an insane take. But beyond that, I think it's also like McCabe and Achari and Lafferty. I think these are guys that Dupas liked all the way dating back to like their days in Buffalo and Pittsburgh and Boston. Um, the, yeah. the the other noteworthy thing, by the way, about that I thought was kind of interesting was that Davidson and Dubas clearly patched things up because 
Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Dumas was super pissed off by the leak, right? Around that. Was it the Marc Andre Fleury stuff? Whatever. It's Davidson. Davidson, not Dubas. Yeah, but Davis, sorry, Dubas was super pissed at Davidson's camp or Davidson himself, whichever it was, about, I think it was the Marc Andre Fleury rumors, right? Because. Oh, yeah, it was Dubas. I was actually upset more than. I thought it was Davidson when I was thinking. No, Dubas. It was Dubas. It's rare to see him sort of. Yeah. Angry in, in, in an interview, but like he it was clear it rattled the, him. There was finally a GM younger than him in the league, and he was like. <laughs> this is amateur hour. <laughs> yeah, this amateur hour, this child comes in, has no clue what he's doing. Like, keep it keep it private so hey maybe that helped the trade because uh maybe that was the start of the call you owe me one for that garbage last year because <laughs> honestly and i know alec and i for listeners were debating this tanner Janot trade basically since the second it happened um the day that'll before. be a whole separate podcast if we get in the weeds Se- here seriously but uh, looking at what it costs the leafs versus what it costs Tampa it you know stunning when you look at when you look at that you know I would have thought I don't think the Leafs traded a prospect of note um most people will know I have not rated Joey Anderson as basically anything at any point all time I was never fooled by that one I don't know how that people were but whatever um so, you know, basically, those are two warm bodies. And there were a collection of picks without question. Uh, and I saw I saw an old, uh, old friend of the, of the website, Howard Berger, go on about the Leafs punting all their first-round picks and this and that and whatever. And it's like, again, if you're not going for it now, when are you going for it? What, like, what are you waiting for? It has to be now. You can't. The worst thing that happens, you look back on this core five years from now and you just say they were sick and, and they didn't do enough to at least try. Now, I can honestly say they tried. Other than goaltending, I can say they tried. Yeah, no, I think the approach is completely sound from Dubas. The other thing, though, about this, like tr- today's trade is that there's going to be another shoe to drop before we can fully analyze it, I think. Uh, because I it looks like another piece has to move out, right? Before you have sort of the complete picture on the deal, you need to see what they do there. Because um, it's it looking like they have to move someone out, move out about like a million, a million and a half in salary at a minimum when for when Matt Murray comes back. Um, so that's kind of, I was meaning to ask you about that actually today, was who who goes? Is it Kerfoot? Some people have thrown Hall out there, but I think that is sort of like you're taking two steps forward and one step back on defense if you do that. Um, so then it's kind of the Kerfoot versus Engvall debate. I know, I know you mentioned it, and I know people don't like Justin Hole, but if they trade him, that's insane. You know, um, agreed. Connor Timmins is not ready to play in the playoffs every night. He's not. I think anytime they've played a good team, he has really struggled. Uh, which fine. I think he's. You know what? They signed him to a good contract. He'll be under contract next season. I think you could put Mark Giordano um, you could staple him to his hip and say learn how to be a pro much like Giordano did with Lilligren and I think you're really going to like how that all plays out for the Leafs long term but for this season I don't think Tim's is even remotely ready to play in the playoffs I don't think the Leafs do either so that means that they basically have two right-handed options Hole leads their team in penalty killing time on ice he is a legitimately good penalty killer if nothing else I think when you play, especially the teams that they played in February, 
a lot of bad teams, Columbus twice, you know, Montreal, Chicago twice, some really mediocre opponents. Um, he looks terrible against those teams. Like they're the anti Justin Hole games. He is good when it's simply use your ability to skate, use your reach and your six two six three frame. You know, be a right handed passing outlet option at best for your partner. And I think he comes off just fine, if not good. And by good, I mean unnoticeable, but in a good way against good teams. So if they get rid of him, I think that is completely insane. So then it becomes between Kerfoot and Engvall. And at, honestly, it's actually a bit more of an interesting debate than I thought it was going to be. Because uh, on one hand, you have, you have Alex Kerfoot. And... Are you about to hear you defend keeping Kerfoot on the team? The only thing that I will say is he has at least shown that he can play a little bit up the lineup and be productive, and Engvall hasn't. And I'm not saying Engvall can't. I'm just saying that Kerfoot's actually gone up there before and been decent, and that counts for something. I don't know if it counts for a lot, and I've said this before, and it's still true. A lot of guys can go and play in those spots and be good. But he's actually done it, and Engvall hasn't. And then you factor in that Engvall does nothing in the playoffs, history all time. My only counter to that would be, I think I think Engvall is a better piece to keep knowing his fit with camp on a good checking line versus Kerfoot is just sort of floating around the lineup providing serviceable enough minutes, but not really scoring. I don't think I want him top six left wing at any point, really. He isn't a crasher and banger who has some like high-end checking ability. He can't score greasy goals at playoff time. <laughs> he literally can't do, score at all. Do you have right like now, some thoughts about his family you want to like include there too? Just go down the list. Forget playoff scoring. He literally can't score at all. Like he's no, right he now he's clueless around the net. I'm marveling at it night to night. But <laughs> to your, I do know I do likely think that Keith likes him more than Engvall. hundred oh, percent, he does. hundred fifty percent. He has There's... a much shorter neck as well, but <laughs> I and and I guess it's true. Kerfoot can can play C in a pinch, although I think that's way less relevant with like Achari and Lafferty and O'Reilly in the mix. It's not really that much of a consideration. Um, it's it's a tough one. I just I think I like the fact that Engvall pairs so well with Camp um, in a checking capacity, and also that he can shoot. Like I, I hear your point about how he just disappears in the playoffs, but I could see a scenario where he has a moment where he gets a little bit of open ice and he actually just rips it by a goaltender. You know that's not coming from Kerfoot. And I I don't know, I can see, like, if you wanted to create something with Engvall, if you wanted to keep Roar in your top six, I think it's a way better bet with Engvall with Kampf than yes. Kerfoot with Kampf. Engvall is a better bottom six option, without question. He plays yeah. well with Kampf. That is notable. Um, he's 6'5 every shift. He might just do what he did in Boston that one time where he's just like, you know what, I'm just going to go end-to-end and, and absolutely yeah. rip one by all I, I miss that Engvall, man. It, it happened, and then for about two weeks, he was like, I can actually shoot and score. And he was just trying to rip it. He was getting the puck and going for it. And then it seems like the All-Star break happened and, I don't know, probably went away and came back and said, ah, that's enough of that for a little bit because he really hasn't done it since. 
if I could trust Ingvall, like I want, I think he is a massive X factor for the team. And yeah. I said it before, if he can, he is the one that drives that third line with Camp and Yarncroft. It's not those other guys. It's him in terms of how strong he is. He he is physically strong. You watch battles sometimes, and you're like, holy. That's what makes him so frustrating, too, right? Yeah. If you had just an ounce of anger in your system, you would claim bodies out there. But he doesn't. But fine enough, whatever. But he can still drive the line. And if he did that, then there's not even a debate about putting Ryan O'Reilly at 3C, in my opinion. I'd be like, fine. Engvall can drive the third line. He's capable. He is. He should be a 15 to 20 goal guy. And so is Yarncroc. And Camp, if nothing else, is not a problem defensively. He's actually very good defensively. And... I have think that playoff camp is a real thing. So I would be fine with it. And in which case you look at Kerfoot and you just scratch your head and say, why is this guy in the lineup? Right? Like you could, you could easily fashion a fourth line with czar Lafferty and Achari and just say, this is going to be the most annoying line of all time. And everyone in the league is going to hate them minus the Leafs and their fans, which is one of my favorite things in the world that ever happens in sports we get very few victories but everyone hating something that the leafs do and the leafs loving it and their fans loving it is one of the best things of all time so but just just a line that gets the leafs into a game like yeah before the leafs only went into a game was through scoring, scoring. a goal yeah right um so somebody that can get you the boards rattling a little bit early get the momentum going the home crowd in like a game seven on home ice yeah calm the nerves down a little bit you know, get your jersey dirty, get into the game a little bit. Like, those are important things to have. And, um, look, Kerfoot rode really high, or at least the perception of him rode really high when he was one of the only players who didn't completely mail it in in that Hab series. Although I think he very much benefited off Nylander having a six series. And then sort of beyond that, it was uh, he kind of rode the coattails of playing on that line with Tavares and Nylander and then you know they should have sold high and they didn't uh, and it would have been nice to have a few more picks or at least a pick or of, of note in the stable so I guess in that way I've kind of answered my own question it's like well then obviously it's Kerfoot um, what I would ask is would the return would the potential of a return I don't think either player is worth much as a pending UFA unless for some reason there is uh, like a team that might make the playoffs that rates them. Um, but if one was getting a second and one was getting a third, would that matter to you? Or would you just go off the player you want to keep? No, that's not enough of a margin for me to care. Okay. Um, especially when you're this pot committed at the, de- yeah. at the deadline. Uh, yeah. It's not going to be, it's just going to be entirely based on, I mean, I do wonder about, we laid a great case for keeping Engvall over Crowfoot, but I, I just wonder where Keith's head's at. I mean, part of me too, there's a victory to me of just keep taking him away from Keefe and just saying, we're done. I'm done watching it. I mean, sometimes I just watch him out there and I'm, I'm like, someone save this man from himself. Just <laughs> take him away from Sheldon so that we don't have to see it anymore. Because it's, you know, it's like the heart of so many poor decisions <laughs> is what they think that he is versus what he actually is, which is not much. But value-wise, I have a really hard time. I mean, Kerfoot plays has played a bit of center. 
Uh, he had 50-plus points last season. Yep. Uh, he's worth almost nothing in terms of salary to a team, if that matters at all to them, uh, relative to cap hit. Like, I think he's owed probably like, like a couple hundred K for the rest of the season. Yeah, this sounds uh, like a Carolina Hurricanes move. Yeah, it really does. So I, I, I wonder if not only is he, to me, the better piece to move off of the roster, but also possibly your better bet at a decent return. Yeah, I actually... I mean, I would be interested to see how teams rate them. I think sometimes fans are too close to the picture here in Toronto. It's like when Bozak became a UFA and everyone thought he would be terrible or got, got very little. And he signed for three years, $15 million with the Blues and was a legitimately good player for them when they won the Cup. Like, he was good. He had like 12, 13 points or whatever. You could win face-offs. Kerfoot does PK, right? It, yeah, so if you... I mean, so does Lafferty if... Uh, I mean, Kerfoot to me that the PK is another one where I'm, I'm like, yeah, he goes there and he does it, but he's to me their weakest player at just winning a battle and clearing the puck. You know, he he's the king of a giveaway at at the own blue line. Totally, and I think Lafferty makes him a little bit more expendable in that I was kind of a the PK, but B I was also kind of looking at it post Ryan O'Reilly and. Achari additions and being like they did get a little bit slower up front. I don't think it's worth ignoring that entirely. And I think Lafferty, yeah. like you subtract Kerfoot, Kerfoot, if nothing else, can skate fast. Um, I think Lafferty helps replace that, so he's a, a little bit feel a little bit less concerned about that aspect of it. Um, so between the PK and then Lafferty also being able to play all three forward positions. Uh, including a bit of center. And I think his face-off numbers are a lot better this year than they have been in years past, which you don't get with Kerfoot. And he can play, he can take right-handed draws. Uh, I think he makes, it makes the most sense that you, you move on from Kerfoot. Uh, I just, I can't kick it from my head that, that there's something there that might even be a little bit intangible in terms of Keith liking the fact that maybe Kerfoot can be, like you said, he can play on your top six left wing or he can play on your bottom line right wing and there's no pouting there's no concern about yeah, like you're not be getting much offensively but, you, but he's low maintenance and and he's serviceable no matter the role uh, i think coaches do value that a lot so i wonder if you know plus the the clear uh personal animus that keith has for <laughs> <laughs> Engvall, makes makes me wonder i also feel like he never wanted to in part it wasn't the whole thing but i think there was a part of him that if, if you traded him for, let's say, a second-round pick in the summer, and it would have been you basically got nothing for Naz. And I think the optics of that maybe didn't make them make the best decision for the franchise itself at times. But you know what? Can, can officially say, Doobie, you've done a good job. You've had, a, you've had a good... You've redeemed yourself. You've had a good few you've... weeks here. Yeah, you've redeemed yourself. Ryan O'Reilly's a Toronto Maple Leaf. You know, we won't hold it against you. Like, you can just... You can just punt him away and it is what it is you know like we'll try to ignore that you didn't whatever. trade barry at the deadline for whatever the hell he could have gotten uh, yeah because you did it, it would have been Kerfoot. addition by subtraction <laughs> yeah it would have been addition by subtraction if they got him they might have actually beat columbus had they just traded tyson barry but that's a whole different story so then last really thing or maybe two things but boston has obviously added orloff and hathaway tampa has added Janot. We've talked a little bit about the Rangers and Devils and what they've added. Um, I 
very quickly have to hilariously note that Carolina has just decided that it doesn't matter if they have a good season. We're just going to watch the other teams do stuff and call it a day and ride Frederick Anderson as our potential starter come day one in the playoff and see how that goes, which we all know how that goes. And how are we feeling about the East? Like I, I love this. And I'll, I just want to start by saying, I love this. I think this is awesome. I, you know, and I I saw Dubas today too. And, um, I was like, I was picking up his energy. He, he said, he was like, this is great for the game. You know, this is great for fans. He wasn't sitting there lamenting Boston and Tampa getting better. It was like, it was like, hell yeah. I was like, you guys want to add guys? We're going to add guys too. And we're going to load up and you guys are going to go with your best. And we're going to go with our best. And we'll see who's standing by the end of it. To me, that's the total approach. I think Boston and Tampa obviously both got better. I think Orloff is a great add. I was a little surprised. I don't know if Boston's done. I thought that they needed a, a forward a little bit higher up in the lineup. For Tampa, I think that they did one of two things I ne- I thought that they needed to do, which was I think they needed a, a better player for their third line. And I think they need a D-man, and I don't know if they'll be able to add a D-man. I want to say they won't. So by and large how are we feeling about the division and the overall conference for that matter? I mean, it's impossible to feel good about uh, this has got to be a, yeah. some sort of historically unprecedented level in terms of like 105 plus point teams. I actually think that Tampa is a more concerning matchup for me personally. Why is that? Uh, one, I think Boston has gotten a little bit lucky this year. I mean, they're very good. Don't get me wrong, but you know, the they're not head and shoulders above the league statistically in terms of how they control play or anything like that and the number of wins that they've already pulled out of their ass in the final 10 minutes of games is enough to last a lifetime so at some point i kind of sit there and go how long is this train really going to run like i literally have their game on right now in the background and edmonton scores and they won the face off and they went down and tied it with in about 15 seconds or something i wasn't looking at the exact clock but it was the shift after, and the shift was not even halfway done. And they've kind of done this all season. And so part of me just says, that's not real. Like, you can't. I guess to your point is, like, we know Vasilevsky is, is real. Is Allmark as real as it seems no. as well? And the worst time to play Tampa, which was true last year, and it's true this year, is round one. It's fully healthy Vasilevsky. It's fully healthy forward group. It's fully healthy Victor Hedman before how bad their rest of their defense is catches up to him because he's playing 30 minutes a night. Like that's the worst time to play them. Whereas Boston, again, I just saying they got lucky is probably not the best way to put it, but like they've been fortunate this season. Part of me says that has to come down to reality. The number of teams that absolutely murder the league and then come back down to earth versus murder the league in the point total the way that they have but not statistically in terms of controlling play that then have it catch up to them come playoff time is actually much more likely. And so, I don't know, I kind of look at it and say, Vasilevsky to me is a problem. Vasilevsky game six, seven was, we're winning this series. I'm not losing in round one. And I don't think Allmark can do that. And I actually don't look at an Allmark versus, and I know Allmark's had an unbelievable season. I'm not taking anything away from him. I'm just saying, like, I don't really look at it and say the Samsonov Olmark matchup terrifies me, but the Samsonov Vasilevsky matchup 
absolutely terrifies me. And I guess, you know, outlasting Braden Point over a seven-game series versus like 37-year-old Patrice Bergeron. That, that's the thing, too. Those guys are almost 40. Krejci. Yeah. 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 Like, that. that's notable, too. But, I mean, how many times have we heard people talk about how old Ryan O'Reilly is? And he's younger than both those guys. And he beat them in the Stanley Cup final. I don't know if that's gonna like, make that's supposed to make me feel better though, because they have to play Tampa first. So Yeah, it's, it's like <laughs> And basically the like, franchise oh, man, is gonna <laughs> implode if they lose another first round series. So Yeah. I, I've just found the whole thing interesting, right? I kinda watch Boston and, and they almost like rope a dope teams to like the highest extent whenever I watch them, and I've watched them a lot. But their depth and their overall lineup, I think the Orloff acquisition was massive in terms of hopefully uh, for their purposes anyway, but not for our purposes of, of just making the more well-rounded team of how they control things. But I don't know, by, by and large, I kind of am like, I'm not, Pasternak scares me and Marshawn scares me. And then it kind of, it's like, Bergeron's still very good, but he's not five years ago Bergeron. And we'll see, what, and we'll see what they do. But to the point of what we were saying earlier, it's like you can see their... Their underlying five-on-five five numbers offensively are more mediocre than it appears. Just looking yeah. at the overall production. Yeah. They're not like Colorado last season where you're sitting there going, they're legitimately running a train on the league and it's going to be a problem. Or even when LA was winning and you were looking at it going, they are tilting teams to a crazy level and that's going to be a serious... Pr- it's more like they're, they're a good team and they have a bunch of good finishers and... I watched that game against, they played against Seattle. I watched the whole game. They won 6-5. They scored with like a minute left to win the game. And the whole time I was just watching going, this is a complete joke of a hockey game. And Seattle is by far top one team. I do not want to see make the playoffs. I'm not remotely interested in that hockey team. I like Matty Beniers. He's not ready. The regression has arrived. I was looking at the numbers the other day and um, McCann scored, I think, 29% 29% of his shots over the first 40 games. And now he has like three goals in his last 16. Oh, so it's almost like he's not a stud. No. Um, Crazy. Ten years are, I think he's down to three goals in his last 16 when he was shooting 20 plus percent. Yeah, he actually is a good player. He's just not ready. No, he's, yeah, he's hitting the rookie wall, I think. And then, yeah. you know, you have Daniel Sprong scoring 15 goals in 35 games. I don't think that was going to keep up either. <laughs> and it has Tolvan and waiver claim and then blacks out for three weeks. And, and you're like, yeah, this is cool and fun. And that, and now it's hitting. Yeah, and then like their, their goaltending has been literally the same since day one of the franchise, which is a dumpster fire. <laughs> yeah, the, so like I said, biggest thing is goaltending is the great equalizer. Boston obviously has a better defense than Tampa. But does it really matter if Vasilevsky's standing on his head and Allmark is being good but not great? It probably doesn't. Like, the Leafs' power play needs to figure it out, obviously. Um, but again, Vasilevsky is much more of a problem for solving their power play all on his own. And then eventually you might get to the Rangers in the conference finals, in which case you're going up against Shesterkin. So... You know, you might go up against, for my money, best goalie in the world, followed up by the probable Vesna winner, who I've just kind of talked down and I still don't believe in. But, you know, good for him. He's having a good year. And then you go to Shesterkin, who isn't necessarily having the greatest year, but is very much a problem. Or it could be Vitek Vanacek in a hilarious rematch of Capitals goalies from last season, which would be about the funniest thing possible as Washington misses the playoffs. Reality is, it's a really good team. 
but we're all just terrified of saying it to some degree of certainty because 0 for 6 and Tampa and Boston. That's just the truth. But sound ridiculous to walk into any sort of playoff run cocky, but I guess quiet confidence <laughs> is maybe the, the current feeling going into this and just genuine excitement about watching Leeds hockey down the stretch and into the playoffs. Like I said, it's, it's just a grind for me to get through one of the bigger grinds, I think, for me to get through a Leafs season for a team that's good, especially in my lifetime of watching the team in terms of like they were it was just such a stare, stale sort of vibe around around the squad coming into the year. And the offseason did nothing to change that. Matthews has very much felt the entire season just going through the motions. Exactly what I was about to say. Sort of Matthews season kind of sums up how I feel about the team watching it, where it's like they're really good. It's just there's like a I think he's sort of just looking at it being like none of this shit matters. And we all sort of feel the same way um, until playoff time kicks off. I do think that you can't really just flip a switch. And it was notable the other night that like he sort of looked like himself and like his third multi-goal game of the year. Um, looked a little bit more fired up. Um, a lot of swagger. And I, I don't think he's ever shortchanged them defensively or over a 200 foot game. No. But he looked like a little bit more fired up offensively to be back with Marner. Um, having those options is awesome to just be able to spark it at a moment's notice. Like all the, everything's there for Keith to. That's kind of what we need to see down the stretch now, right? It's like how does he optimize it? Um, I'm happy to see him like rotating Nylander, no rotating Nylander down onto Ryan O'Reilly's line. I think is a worth worth a look. But now it's you know what does a building a third line around Ryan O'Reilly look like? Um, so and then now you've got a whole defense core to play with as well. Whether it's Lilgren and Geo staying together, whether it's Geo and Hall, or whether it's McCabe with one of those um, Lilgren or Hall, those are all things that we can like actually look forward to down the stretch. Now that like the standings are basically etched into stone. Although I do think I would also note as one final note is that the home ice thing matters. I know that it's easy to get biased against it and say, well, they lost in you know, game five and seven and seven with home ice advantage. There were no fans in the buildings for those first two, so they're kind of irrelevant. But last year they lost in game seven. It's still a notable edge. Both these teams are ridiculously good in Tampa and Toronto on home ice. I think the Leafs are second and Tampa's third for reference. It's still an edge um, in a a series where it's going to be razor thin. So uh, it's silly to just say it didn't matter last year, so who cares this year? That's. I thought it did matter too, though. I thought... I thought the Leafs were great in Game 5 at home. They came out, they took the series lead in Game 1. Like, I thought it, I don't know how it didn't, I mean, the team with home ice didn't win, but I saw individual games where it definitely mattered. I'm not even sure the Leafs would have... Been competitive in Game 7? Yeah, if it was in Tampa, I don't know. Uh, So... Hard to say, though, because, like... Are you freezing like the magnitude of that moment? Are you a little looser on the road versus freezing up in front of your own fans as you get to the third period and you've scored one goal? And like I could see it both ways. Yeah, you can always make the case for both. And part of me as a fan will always want to feel like us, the fans, gave them the push they needed <laughs> <laughs> to get over that hump. You know, we did it. We played a part. You know, but whether that's true, I don't know. Uh, to your Matthews point, part of me honestly respects him. Kind of just like none of this matters until the playoffs thing that he has going on. I respect it. I mean, I, I wouldn't have cared if he had 60 again this year. It, like, it doesn't matter to me. I need him to show something to say, yeah, like I'm still sick and can turn it on whenever I want to. 
uh, and like sustain it for a little bit now, which he has started to do. Uh, but beyond that, good for him. I mean, I think he would get criticized more the other way. You know, if, if he was going 150 on a Tuesday in January, people would it probably you'd hear it the other way going, why don't you light it up like this in the playoffs? Instead, he's kind of just going through it. And uh, it's not like he's having an unproductive season. It, but, you know, what's he what's he on pace for 40 and point per game or over point per game? Like he's not a bum. <laughs> Yeah, he's still going to hit 40. And he never, like the thing with Matthews, too, is like you never know what he can do in 22 games. <laughs> yeah. He could go and score 22 goals. Like it's yeah. 100%. I mean, he went 50 and 50. So criticizing him is like the worst thing that you can do because it just. He's going to embarrass you the next period. Yeah. Yeah. yeah you never want to say anything. So like I'm not worried about him or anything. I just I look forward to him turning it up come playoff time. I think the boys are fired up. I don't know how they couldn't be. I think there's something to that. I think there's something to energizing the fan base. I think there's something to energizing the team. I think there's something to just energizing everything about it. I've really noticed it with uh, I've really noticed it with Tavares in particular. Camp too. He scored right away, and it was like he wasn't playing for his job, but it felt like he was going out there playing for his job. And I loved it, Tavares. To your point, sorry to cut you off there. You just saying Tavares? Honestly, he's been better all season. I think he just tied last season's. Uh, goal total by the way last night or the other night um but there's just there's like a little bit more pop in his step like you can just you can just see that a guy like that um it's like it's winning time and the gm's rewarded me and the message has been sent and we're gonna deliver and to Tavares's point it's a, a we've talked about riley's playoff heroics being basically a, a footnote um i think Tavares's series last year was was incredible in terms of like I was there's the critics were sort of circling through the first couple games and thought he was incredible through games like four five six um so I'm looking I'm looking forward to seeing that in the playoffs um I'm looking forward to seeing playoff O'Reilly I'm looking forward to I'm looking forward to continuing the, the show in May <laughs> it, it's gonna be lights out Ryan O'Reilly's a leaf Jake McCabe's a leaf I don't want to go that far for Sam Lafferty and Nola Chari, but you know they're here. The team is ready to go. The energy's alive and well. There's still a few days to go here from trade deadline. I'm not expecting too much other than you know shedding a potential contract and all that. Uh, but we've been surprised before. Uh, if we are again, you might hear from us a fourth straight week. I think we should definitely do it. I think we should look back at the deadlines in totality because we're talking like boston might not be done tampa bay's got a tough road to add but they they might also not be done so let's revisit that conversation with boston tampa in a week sounds good otherwise go leafs go go leafs go